they abuse. If I can sit here in a 6,000 square foot house with a Corvette, and I, I, I go through so much pain because of the things that are said to me. Imagine a young girl in Nigeria, 20 years old, just starting her life with, just try to make something of herself. Yeah. She committed suicide. That was the hardest piece for me last year. Welcome to the show. I am your host, Anya Fombat, and I spark the heart conversations that challenge questionable cultural and societal norms that threaten the well-being of the African community. And I also share stories about growing up as Africans in Africa and in the diaspora. I strongly believe that normalizing open discussions and sharing experiences, whether good or bad, will not only make you find your voice, but will broaden your sense of purpose and empower others to do the same. So if you have ever tried challenging certain African cultural and societal doctrines, or if you have ever felt like it is about time that we confronted these issues in our African community and do better as a people, or even if you have always been interested in learning about the experiences of other Africans growing up in Africa and the diaspora, then you are in the right place. Welcome to Living African. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Living African. In honor of Pride Month, which is the month of June, we will continue addressing a few topics and discussing a few perspectives about the LGBTQIA community. Members of this community have been extremely marginalized and have suffered from homophobia, isolation, abuse and criminalization, especially in our African community. So today we will be talking with a lesbian couple who became the first Nigerian born out legally married lesbian couple in the U.S. So I just want to welcome Dr. and Mrs. Sola Wilson. Welcome to the show. How are you guys doing today? Great, Tanya. Thank you so much for having us. Hi, thank you so much for having us. This is going to be a great conversation. Yes, yes. I'm super excited and um, I really looked forward to this conversation and I really hope that, you know, at the end of this conversation, the listeners must have really been educated and sensitized about a lot of things that the members of the LGBTQIA community have been facing. So um, I'll just go straight to it. Um, so I just want, I think Hubo will probably take turns um, just to tell us your story and um, how you realize that, you know, you may have like same sex attraction. And um, I believe Mrs. Moji, you can go first. Um Thank you for the question. It's it's a very important question for those that are questioning their own sexuality as well. Right. Um, I was 14 when I realized that a lot of my friends were attracted to boys and I wasn't. My first girlfriend was at 14 and I just had that connection that was, it had nothing to do with sex. It was an emotional right. attraction. It was a physical attraction. And at that age, I wasn't really thinking sex it was just, I connected with this person and it was heart wrenching when we had to go home, you know, everybody went home. It just, I just knew. But um, yeah, I was 14 when I knew I was, I was a lesbian. I mm -hmm. was gay. Cause, and then you have to remember I'm 56. There was no, I didn't know what gay was in those days. Right. I didn't know it was different. And that's the way it was for quite a long time. It wasn't until I was in my, I think thirties in therapy that I could, I put a name to it. Right. If that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, unlike uh, my wife, I kind of did what I thought society and church and everybody else wanted me to do, which was right. be heterosexual. And I tried really, really hard mm -hmm. and it didn't work. So, yeah, I I was 14. And then in my I was almost 39 or so when I just owned who I am. Right. And, you know, I never looked back. And you? Wonderful. Yes, Dr. Wilson. Yeah. Um. So my story is uh, goes back much younger. I think I was about eight years old. When I realized that I was different, right. I wasn't sure. Again, I didn't have a word for it, but I did know that um, I tended to form strongly emotionally bond, emotional bonds with, with girls. And I just was not interested in boys. And that persisted to my teenage years, by which time I had learned the word lesbian. <laughs> but I learned it as a negative word. Right. I learned it as a slur. Um, and so I... I, but I couldn't bring myself to be otherwise. It right. was just, um, so I carried that with me all the way through my teenage years, all the way through medical school. 
um, all the way through part of my postgraduate training. But then you get to a point, at least I got to a point in my life where I could no longer live um, a lie. I just right. wouldn't be able to self-actualize. And so I came out of the closet when I was, um, oh, probably well over, th- almost 30 years ago. And I've right. been out since then. Wow. That's, um, thank you very much for that story. So, um, Mrs. Sola Wilson, I, I, I know, I mean, after I follow you on, on social media and I really love your page. I love your authenticity. I mean, your authenticity is something that I hope to, to achieve, you know, because every now and then, um, some of us still care about what people think, what people will say. We can't just be ourselves. And that's something that I'm really, really working on. But one thing that um, got me wondering when I read your story um, or both of your stories, because I think you say the story for both of you. And um, I realized that you had kids and you were married before to a man. And in the Nigerian community, I mean, how... How was that experience to think that you had actually had that first realization that you may have same sex attraction at 14, but then you went on to, you know, um, fit into the, you know, the norms and fit into the, um, the expectations of the African community, for example, or even the community as a whole, like, you know, you have to have kids, you have to get married and all of that. Like, I would only imagine what actually you were going through while, you know, basically sacrificing your truth to accommodate the status quo, you know? So I just want you to tell us a little bit about, you know, the things that you were going through and the whole experience that you had, because I believe this is especially important for those who actually know who they love or know their truth, but are afraid to, you know, to leave out their truth just because they're trying to fit the status quo or not disappoint their family or friends. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. Th- this question is a- absolutely perfect because you'll find what I found out was that 80% of the 10% of Africans that are LGBTQ are actually in the closet and most of them are married to the opposite gender. Wow. Um, for me, my journey started when I left home very early and I came to the United States um, to go to school. And I, like I said earlier, I was never sexually attracted to men. I like men. They were always my best friends, mm-hmm. you know, because there's just this safety net that I did not relate to brotherhood because that's what was expected, yeah. you know, friendship because that's what was expected. Right. And, you know, along the way I dated men. Of course, it's not going to work because I'm not romantically, emotionally attracted to them, sexually attracted to them either. And I decided at 26, I was modeling and I decided, you know, everybody was going away to Europe and doing things that I wasn't interested in in at that point in my life. There was, everything was just crazy in the industry and being black and then being African. That was like, there was this disconnect. So I decided I wanted children and I went to my friend. I have, uh, uh, I had ages ago, a male friend back then. And I said, look, I want to have kids. I mean, it was unheard of in those days. We're talking mm-hmm. about 1989 yeah. and African women. I wasn't really in the African community anyways, but I had a few African yes. friends. So I went to my friend and I said, I want to have kids. You want to be the dad? And he's like, ah, sign here saying you'll never take a penny from me. Right. And I did just that. And we had two kids. Mm -hmm. So I was fine with that. But then family are in my ear saying, when are you getting married? And in the meantime, I'm building my businesses. You know, I was a realtor at that point. Mm -hmm. And at 36, I still wasn't married. And everybody's screaming, oh, my God, when are you going to get married? All my sisters are getting married. My brothers are getting married. And everybody's screaming. So eventually I met someone that I really liked a lot. And we had a lot of things in common. He was interested in real estate and we got married. But along the years, I realized that even though I've achieved so much in the real estate industry, in the entertainment industry, because I became a talent manager mm. and I had clients like Eneoloja, who's from Kokoa John and also Zagadoro, who's, you know, in Nigeria, big time movie maker now, um, actor and a lot of people. And I was doing amazing things. I still felt empty on, on the inside yeah. and my life just made no sense. Mm. So after the third time that I tried to commit suicide in the hospital, the third time, I was on the hospital bed looking down. I was on to, like on top of the ceiling somehow looking down on my body. And then in walks this person that I believe is God. 
and I sit on the edge of the bed with this person on the other side of me and he's telling me I have so much more for you to do. Because at that point, I'd been a Sunday school teacher for many, many years and I'd been going to church forever. And they had told me I'd gone to a pastor and said, oh, I think I'm gay. And she's like, well, I've been, you have to pray and to fast some more. So I tried to do um, conversion therapy, went to Nigeria to get, you know, to get to the churches in Nigeria because, you know, God resides in Nigeria, only in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. So I went to Nigeria and tried to get conversion therapy and it didn't work. And this day that I tried to commit suicide, this man tells me, and again, I believe it's God. Some people have told me it's not, but whatever mm-hmm. it is, this person told me that I have a mission for you. I have a purpose for you. It's not your time to go yet. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at him like, really? I I'm, I think I'm gay and whatever. And he goes, don't worry about it. Just focus on me. I'm like, churches don't want me. Black people don't like me. You know, I don't fit in anywhere in this universe, but, you know, whatever the case is. And that's how I went home that day and I never looked back. And then a few years later, about three years later, um, same guy comes to me in my dream and says, oh, I want you to come out. I'm like, I'm already out. How much more out can you can I be? Mind you, I'm out in my world, mm. but I wasn't out on social media. I would talk about my girlfriend of that at that point. You know, I'd left my ex mm-hmm. for about four years. I left my ex in 2006. And then 2009 ending, I met someone and we started a relationship. And when I talked about her on social media, I would say, oh, your partner, your mate, you know, and things like that. Like I would never use she. So right. nobody knew on no. social media yes. that I was dating anybody, that I was dating a woman. And this person, this person came to me and said, you have to come out uh, on social media. And I'm like, uh-uh, I can't, I won't. I'm already a, a co-host on a show out of London on, um, on Block Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I can't do that. And, you know, I kept having the same dream over and over and I kept making excuses. I don't know how to, I'm not computer savvy. Somebody, one of my Facebook friends lost their job and inboxed me saying, do you need an assistant? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, I'm a computer, whatever, whatever. And I'm like, wait, I'm supposed to be doing, I want to do a show on Block Talk Radio, but you know, I'm not computer savvy. He's like, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. Yeah, yeah. And that's how I started a show called The Real LGBTQ Lives. And I came out on that show and 45,000 people heard me. Wow. All over the world. Because we had been building up to it on Facebook. I'd been posting and talking about this thing. And then I came out and everything hit the fan wow. when I came out. I thought it was bad when I came out. It wasn't even that bad compared to when we got married. But um, that's how I came out on social media. And I've never looked back. I mean, I lost family, friends. They didn't die. They just walked away. And um, once I came out, all of a sudden people were coming to me and saying, I'm gay. Actors, Nigerian actors, I in my inbox saying, thank you for doing what you do. I'm gay. Doctors, lawyers, name it. They were, I mean, there's a lady that sells a car on the roadside, you know, and she came in my inbox and said, I'm gay. And I'm like, whoa, wow. okay. this makes sense now. And little by little, I started to build a little tribe of gay and non-gay people that were, you know, allies and things like that. And yeah, and that's pretty much it. Wow, that's that's definitely a powerful story. Thank you so much for sharing that. And uh, Dr. Solo Wilson, um, I would also have imagined that, you know, living in the typical um, African community um, and not necessarily only living, but just even coming from an African community, it must have been so hard for you to just express yourself, especially because um this is not something that was openly discussed in our community. And this was not something that people even knew about. So um, what was your own experience up until when you decided to come out? Like what um, struggles or what, you know, yeah. What struggles did you really experience from maybe the community, your family, friends and things like that? Yeah, um, it was, it's been an interesting journey and I'm grateful for my journey because it helped me build grit. Hmm. I left Nigeria when I was 29. So up until then, from the age of eight, I had walked around with what felt like a very shameful secret. Hmm. Um, It gave me a chance to see people for who they really can be. Um, And as a young woman growing up, 
it also gave me the opportunity to experience the pressures of society. Wow. People who have absolutely nothing to do with you, nothing to do with your life, you barely know. Some family and friends feel that they have the right to comment on the life of a woman simply yes. because she is a woman. Yes. They bring their misogyny to the table. I cannot tell you how many perfect strangers I had walk up to me in Nigeria and ask me why I wasn't married. I cannot tell you how many men in Nigeria, regardless of their socioeconomic status, yeah. would reach up to me and feel that simply because they were men, they would be doing me a favor by extending an offer of marriage. I cannot tell you how many people asked me why I did not want to have children. I decided that I would be consciously child-free. I don't owe an explanation to anyone as to why I did not want to have biological children. Yeah, I yeah. just did not. My life in Nigeria up until 29 was miserable. And yet the paradox was that I was a highly accomplished, brilliant physician. And yet I could not see myself as such. Yeah. I was in the closet. And so I was part of my own problem. Mm -hmm. So I had a supportive family in my mother and brother and didn't even know it because I hid my secret from them yeah. out of fear. Mm -hmm. So the only support structure that I could have I denied myself of. They were only two people, but they would have been my strength. Yeah. I recognized I could not live in Nigeria. I knew that I would never, never take on a heteronormative shadow. Yeah. I would not do that to myself. The yeah. mere thought I say to people, I would rather know. So I knew I had to leave. And fortunately, by the grace of God, I always say, I got a fellowship. Um, to complete a clinical, I'm a physician, to complete a clinical cardiology fellowship at the Hammersmith. And that was when I left to the UK. I remained, shame is a very hard thing to get rid of. Yes. So even when I was in the UK, I carried my shame and I continued this, this schizophrenic life I was living. Yeah. And the burden got heavier and heavier. Yeah. And then one day I was sitting in a tube station in England. And I will remember, see, I met God in a very different way. Yeah. And I'll tell you oh. the story briefly. Sitting in the tube station, I, it was about seven o'clock in the evening. I heard a set of heels coming down, you know, the, 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 the hallway, very loud. There were just a few people in the station. It was getting dark. We're all waiting for a train. And I could hear the heels coming very sharp and loud. And I looked up as the heels got closer and I saw a woman. She was clearly gay. She was black. She was tall. She had a pair of black jeans and a black leather jacket and black boots. And the people around me looked at her and they sniggered and some pointed and she held her head up high and kept walking. I looked at her and I said to myself, if she can do it, I can. You can do it. Yeah. And I came out the very next day. Wow. Wow. That, that is, that is so powerful. And um, I kind of got a little bit emotional when you were talking because I mean, regardless of your sexual background, us, especially as African women, like we go through so much, we, we are scrutinized in everything that we do when in the, career that we choose in the way we want to live our lives in the choices that we make like it's like everybody like you said everybody even the strangest thing that they have a say um to our lives and i don't think that's fair and those are one of the reasons why i i decided to start this podcast so that we can have such discussions we can let people know that you know especially people who probably care but they care in their own way but it's not helping it's not helping the situation. And, you know, we just want people to really realize that your actions have consequences on other people and to be more mindful. And, and that's I mean, that, that was such a powerful um, way to put it. And that was such a powerful story that you both um, shared. I can only imagine um, living with such a burden in your life and no one is willing to even understand, you know, what you're going through now um, moving to um, 
the marriage where we've spoken about, you know, how you both of you came came out and stuff like that. So, uh, I mean, I'm not going to ask how you met and all that. I mean, because <laughs> this there's every story behind every romance, right? I would have loved to hear your romance story, which, I'm, you know, I, I, I can only imagine, but I definitely will want to focus more on, on the experiences that you guys had because of who you chose to love. And um, so you, like I mentioned, you were both the first openly, the, the first openly uh, were born Nigerian, born out, legally married um, lesbian couple in the U.S. And um, I read, I would say, a preview of like the story from uh, Mrs. Sola Wilson's uh, Instagram page mm-hmm. about uh, from the wedding and the scrutiny and everything that you guys face. Uh, for those who probably don't really have an idea, like, do you guys mind elaborating further on that? You know, just for people especially our African community, to see the damage that could possibly be done by, you know, judging people based on their personal life choices? Um, so Margaret and I met and we realized that we would, well, I realized that we were meant for each other. Right. I, I can't always speak for you, I would like to. <laughs> but um, I realized, we both realized that we were meant for each other. We had grown up on the same streets in Nigeria. She lived in Ikoyi, I lived in Ikoyi, couple right. of away from each other. She lived in Ibadan, mm-hmm. and my family owned a bakery literally a block away from her house, mm-hmm. where I spent most of my summers. We lived in New York on the same, uh, same street. She was at 194, I was 100. Wow. At, at the same time, but our mm-hmm. paths never crossed. Mm-hmm. So I guess the universe brought us together when right. the time was right. So we just decided to get married and, you know, I want, I brought it to the table that, you know, I wanted a Nigerian traditional wedding. Mm-hmm. So my friend is like, wow, that's great. Because, you know, if we were heterosexual from coming from the families that we both come from that are mm-hmm. very comfortable, very well known in Nigeria and such. Right. It was sad that we were trying to get married and we, you know, it's bad enough that we have to pick up the tab ourselves because you know how traditional weddings are in Africa. Mm-hmm. It's like a big production and things. And mm-hmm. I'm the first child and she's the only doctor in her whole village, right. <laughs> you know? So I was thinking, wow, okay, this is going to be easy. And then we went out looking for vendors and nobody would touch the wedding. Hmm. I mean, and then the only person that we finally got to do the wedding, when we sat in front of her, kept calling Margaret, him, he and I'm looking at her going, she's my wife. She's, right. to be wife. she's a woman. She doesn't want to be a man. You know, she's masculine. I felt like I had to give her a class all over, like three or four times. I was tired. I said, you know what? Let's just do this. We ended up inviting my family that I wanted there would not come mm-hmm. because um, we were lesbians. I actually invited my favorite sister to the wedding, and she said that um, it's against her religion, so she would not be able to attend. I was spoken. But the way God works, when you're being authentic and you're being, living in truth, the universe has a way of aligning everything for your best to lift you up. So my sister wasn't coming. My few family members that I wanted there were not coming because it's against their religion. Mm-hmm. They ended up having friends on Facebook stand up as my father because my dad's dead. Yeah. And a couple that I had met on Facebook stood in for my family and right. Margaret's only family member that came back was her cousin from the UK who flew in. And then who else? Our lawyer was the one that gave the bride price. It was hilarious. A Jewish oh, guy wow. in a Nigerian wedding. I mean, the footage is hysterical, but we designed our own wedding. We designed everything ourselves. We, um, King Sonia, this son, who happens to be, we call him our brother, yeah. was he arranged for the talking drummers and he was a drummer at the event. We had three, literally three weddings. I mean, you know, Nigeria knows the carry last. Yeah. <laughs> so we, had, we, had, we got married in the courthouse. We got married traditionally and we had a white wedding as well. Otherwise, after the event, the uh, one of the people that I thought was very close to me, Every time I tell the story, I get emotional. I've been I've been friends with this person on Facebook for like seven years. Yeah. And we we're talking, you know, she had issues. I helped her out. We talked back and forth. She calls me Auntie Moji. You know, I had invited some of my Facebook friends to social media friends to the event. Yeah. And this one person leaked the pictures to a blogger. And 
funny enough, at the wedding, remember, we had security, ex-Marine, ex-police officers, been like eight of them carrying guns. You had to turn, I think Michael Jackson was getting married. The way we did this thing, we literally right. shut down the Hilton Hotel. And we had security guards there collecting uh, cell phones and giving them receipts for it. We had about 10 photographers, you know, at the wedding. And everybody that wanted pictures, the pictures were controlled so that it wouldn't leak to the press, not because we were not out, mm -hmm. but because of the fact that it was our day. We yeah. wanted to get married the way we wanted to get married. And yeah. I already knew that the press would carry it, but I wanted us to have that day. Yeah. To remember as an amazing day that we exchanged vows. Now, it's not just the drama from the person that leaked the pictures. It's a drama from my children that were very, um, what's the word? Not too cooperative, mm -hmm. you know, cooperating rather. And then, if, you know, the pictures, we got finished the wedding at 12 midnight. We're on our way out. And this person who I thought was my very good friend said to me, oh, take a picture. The only picture we allowed to take with their phone was leaked to the press. And then she had taken all the pictures that were set around the place as part of the decor. Yeah. And she sold those pictures to the press. And my God, we got married at 12 midnight. We hit the papers in Nigeria at 3 a.m. My phone was ringing off the hook. Have you seen? We were all over every wow. social media blog, African, every newspaper blog, African page. You can imagine being on the cover of the Nigerian, I mean, version of the New York Times. Yeah. So much stuff going on in Nigeria, but for about six months, everywhere we turned, people were trying to take pictures of us people were trying to do you know people would park outside the house we were getting wow. death threats it was horrible oh my goodness horrible we couldn't go to the supermarket nigerians were telling us we we're going to hell i mean the stuff on social media i, I mean it happened and it's okay i'm i'm almost grateful that it happened because it made me a different kind of person it made me a stronger person it got yeah. me to the point where i now live my life as yeah. i choose with integrity, a moral compass that's intact. Yes. But I'm living from my own terms. We are living life on our own terms because yes. we're not hurting anybody. Yes. You know? Yes. That's true. Long way. If, you know, if I could just make a couple points, because this is, and thank you. Thank you for doing what you do. Thank um, you. I'll make a couple of points. There are a couple of things that I think this is, we, we don't talk to the press of. No, we don't. And the reason why I started my response by thanking you for what you do is because I don't know that we've, um, I've, I've ever shared what I'm, you know, what I'm going to share right now. Okay. People have often said to us, well, why did you get married? Why did you do that? Why did you have a big ceremony? Why didn't you just do it in a quiet way? Right? Right. Um, and here's the response to that. I never intended to get married. When we got, when we decided that we were going to get married, there was a fundamental question I asked myself, thinking of my family background, our family backgrounds, our professional accomplishments. Yeah. If we were heterosexual, yes. what would that wedding have looked like? Yes. I was just asking based, the same thing <laughs> on my mind. Yeah. Based on that, I said that is the exact wedding we are going to have. To have, yep. And that is why we that way. Yeah. My friends and peers have weddings that make headlines across the world, covered in bridal magazines, yes. carried by the press, that the people attend. There's celebrations that go on for one day, for, for one week. Yeah. I will not shortchange us simply because we have chosen to use the same gender, to, to, yes. simply because we love Gender. Yes. Second point. I am so grateful for the experience that we went through in the media. I read every single one of those comments out there, hmm. including the one that told my wife to hang herself and jump off oh the Staten gosh. Island Bridge, including the ones that described me as an abomination and a beast and used language that I would not repeat on this platform. And the comments went on and on and on. And they came from Nigerians from all parts of the country. And there were hundreds, 
hundreds of these comments. I was grateful. It gave me a chance to see Nigerians as they chose to present themselves. And that for me was a learning. It also fueled me because we, Moji and I, had gotten to a point where our question, by the time we got death threats and there were people hunting us down in supermarkets and it it was horrendous. The question we asked ourselves was, what worse could happen? And it actually fueled our determination to be visible. Because Anya, if they can do this to Moji and I, think about others out there who may not be as well positioned as we are, the hell they have to go through. So for me, when I have these conversations, we often talk about homophobia as though it's out there in the African community. No, it's in here. I encourage everyone listening to your show to pull out a mirror and hold it up to their face. Somewhere in their reflection, they will see homophobia. I know that because I read those comments. Yes, yes. Thank you guys so much. My goodness. I wasn't expecting this discussion to be this heavy on me, but oh my goodness. Thank you so much. I mean, I'm learning as well from from you guys. And I mean, this is one of a kind experience. I wish everyone listening could actually be in my shoes right now. But um, I just want to thank you guys for for, you know, sharing this story, because this is an extremely important story. I mean, talking about comments, I follow a few blogs, a few pages on social media and and especially, I mean, recently in my country, I don't know if you guys, well, I believe Mrs. Moji, uh, Sola Moji um, posted yeah. that um, about Cameroon um, imprisoning this attempted homosexuals. I you know. Yeah, I, I don't even know what that means, but um, they were imprisoning them for five years. And I, I just think it didn't make sense. And, um, you know, and the comments, the comments below, you know, yeah. I, I also have um, someone that, you know, she's um, LGBTQIA plus advocate and she's Cameroonian and she's lesbian as well. I hope to talk to her in one of our episodes, our future episodes. And she has been really, really doing um, a lot of work to help sensitize the word and free this to um, individuals who are, you know, Cameroonians as well. And the comments, people bashing her, people yeah. who were probably not even Christians or people who, I mean, I don't even know, like with, with things happening nowadays, I don't even know the real definition of a Christian anymore, because sometimes when I look at the way certain Christians act, it just doesn't even rhyme with what the Bible says. And it doesn't yeah. even rhyme with how Jesus taught us to, t- to treat one another, to love one another as we love ourselves. The comments, you know, I mean, I find myself like replying to certain comments and then I just cancel it because what I have is not to say it's, it, it's not going to help the situation. So um, I was actually watching an interview a few days ago. Um, I don't know if you guys heard about Billy Porter coming out yeah. um, to talk about his HIV plus status. And um, I was watching an interview on Tamron Hall and he said something that was extremely powerful. Actually, that was probably one of the things that stuck with me. And um, he was talking about the fact that one of the first things that are typically taken away from members of the LGBTQIA plus community is their spirituality. Yes. So it's like they don't have any right to be spiritual because of who they love. And so I just wanted us to shed more light on that. And, you know, I wanted to understand your thoughts about that and basically and or especially from your experience from the Christian or I believe you get both a Christian, so I, I can say Christian from the Christian African community. Like, I, I, I can't wait to hear what you have experienced and their perspectives and your perspectives. All my life, well, like, I've always loved God. I've always connected to God. I, I can hear. Yeah. I dream. Yeah. And I just... I, my, I, I can't even explain the connection that I've always had with the universe, right? It's personal. Yeah. Personal. And I, was a, I wasn't a Christian first. I was a Buddhist first. Mm-hmm. And so that taught me to love all beings, all God's creations, and yeah. walk in the light, as in understanding that whatever I put out there is going to come to me. And mm-hmm. when you give love, you don't expect it back. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just giving because that's what's needed at that point in time. Mm-hmm. So then I became a Christian. As a Buddhist for 15 years, I never had to question my sexuality. I was just a child of God. Right. right? Then I got into the Christian walk and it was like they were so obsessed with sexuality and the gay community that when I started to come into my own being yeah. and start to look at my 
try to understand my sexuality, you know, and what where I landed on the spectrum. One of the things that made it very difficult for me to accept myself is the fact that I was told in, I mean, in several, I would go to one church for a year. And when I couldn't take it anymore because of the bashing of the LGBTQ community, I would leave and go elsewhere. And they all had the common bios, I would say. Yes. We basically homosexuals are demons, homosexuals, homosexuality is a crime. God did not love gay people. And that's what led to me trying to commit suicide three times. Right. I was a Sunday teacher for about five years in this last church that I went to. And, you know, I had helped them to build the, the Sunday school. Mm-hmm. I had put in my heart, my all. I went to church three, four times a week. And I would ask, the, you know, I walked up to my pastor who ran the children's, <laughs> the children's um, church. Mm-hmm. And I walked up to the pastor that day and I said, you know, I think I'm gay. And she's like, you have to fast and you have to pray someone. Right. You're not praying enough. You're not fasting enough. So I really did believe that. And I fasted a lot. I got to be 135 pounds soaking wet and I'm 5'7". And I still, I was still gay. Then I went to Nigeria and they said, you know, go to Celestial Church and go and sleep on the grave of Oshofa, who created Celestial Church. And I did that for seven days and seven nights. And then on the seventh day, they took me to the beach and started to wash my body with a sponge. Oh my God. And I realized I was too busy looking at the dresses, gowns of the people, the women wet. And then I realized I was still gay and came back to the United States and said, you know what, this is it. And I really believe God did not love me. I really believe that God did not want me until I accidentally ran into a church. And I mean accidentally, literally, I went to that church because I heard the music and I love the music. I'm driving through this town in Newark. I heard the music. And I said, whoa, to the church and saw that pastors were gay. <laughs> the quiet people were gay. I already knew most of the quiet people in all of the churches I've been to were gay anyways. There's more gay, there's more lesbian in, if I can use Boris for a minute, mm-hmm. in the churches than anywhere else I'd ever been. Because that is where you see people that are LGBTQ searching for God. The pastors were gay in the straight church. I found out later because the pastor that I went to that told me to pray and fast came out a few years ago. I actually interviewed her on my show on Facebook, Authentic oh. Conversations with Mo. So the and previous, I posted it on the IG. Previous pastor, the, the pastor who had told you to pray and fast, she eventually came out. Huh. She eventually came out. Interesting. As left. Because she finally fell in love with a woman. And, you know, it gets to a point where two things push you out of you. You meet the one or you cannot like you can be like me that could no longer look at myself in the mirror because I'm living a lie. Yeah. So when that happened and I went to this church and I realized that God is really inside me and God had been telling me for many, many months to focus on him anyways and stop looking outside myself and look within me because he resides in me, right? But the black churches and the African churches are the worst places for, I mean, homosexuals. Sadly, it's a place where we all go to. Yes. Looking for salvation, looking for love and acceptance, and they break the LGBTQI community more than anybody else, more than anywhere else. They preach hate in most churches. And, you know, for when you've been shunned by your family and then you go to a place where God allegedly resides in and you're you're, you're beaten down even worse. Yeah. A lot of people commit suicide. That's what triggered my suicide attempt, my third one. Because when God that you believe in, that you know claims to have created your image is being said not to even be the one that created you. You start to wonder what, where your worth is, yeah. where your value is. Yeah. And what do I have to add to the, to the world? When I have achieved so much in my life, I'm, I mean, I'm a top real estate broker in New York. I'm the first African-American on the Staten Island Board of Governors in 70 years. I have done this. I have done that. I feed the homeless and I do this and I take people in and I help people all over the world. And God still doesn't like me because the churches said so. 
that breaks us a lot. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you have your own one. Yeah. I was born Catholic. Um, and like I said, by eight years old, I knew something was different. And for the Catholics out there, we're all familiar with confession. Yeah. This was the one thing I, I never confessed. It was shame buried so deep that there was no way I was going to tell anybody about this. So I'd go into confession. I'd talk about everything else. I mean, I'm, how many sins could I you just talk about everything else? But this one thing I could never speak about. And so you, you sit in the church feeling because then at that point you are convinced this is a sin. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, at that point, the gravity of this sin, which religion you believe this is a sin yeah. you're sitting in the church and you're you're so conscious of your sin the church tells you it's okay yeah you know sinners this is a place for you yeah except if you're homosexual you're gay yeah right then then it's a whole different discussion they, they sort of beat you over the head with that and you know every now and then the sermon is about that right yeah after a while for me it became very difficult to continue to sit through that. So what do a lot of us do, LGBTQIA people, we begin to church shop. Yeah. A lot of us church shop. You go from church to church to church, not because you think the message is going to change because they're all going to be talking about Leviticus, but you go from church to church because you're looking for the cure. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. The Catholic Church won't do it. They don't read the Bible enough. So maybe let me go to a church that's Bible believing. Mm-hmm. And then you go there and you follow all the instructions and it doesn't work. So you change church and you keep church shopping. And every church you go to, you're met with a different variety of hatred, which yes. usually is some form of we love you, but we don't love the sin. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. For me, it got to a point. And every church you go to, what do you run into? You run into LGBTQIA people in the church, deep in the closet, who are part of the problem. They will usually be the first to throw the stone, stone, right? So for me, I recognized at some point, out of anger at God, that I was the one making the fundamental mistake. You see, I was looking to man and community in the church to Hmm. give me the answer. Right. Uh, God doesn't need the pastor to talk to Margaret. He doesn't need the community to talk to Margaret. Yes. The second realization was I can read the Bible just as good as anybody else. And God can talk to me the same way he talks to the Pope. Yes. And so I went on a personal individual, independent search. And I began to read the Bible like a textbook. Mm -hmm. And nowhere in the Bible could I find the messages Christians were delivering. Yes. And so I took back my, I I took back my spirituality. And the one thing I will not do for any reason is step into a church where I cannot say, I am Margaret, this is my wife, and we are gay. Yes. If I say that from the pulpit, I will no longer be part of those damaging communities. Right. Let me be clear, Anya. Christian communities um, are not the same thing as spirituality. Yes. Hmm. I will say, I am a Christian. I believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus would not be found dead in some of these churches. Yep. Because hmm. the damage they do. Yes. A totally, totally different sort of pain. Yeah. I would say to all LGBTQIA people, you know, some people believe in God and others don't. For those who believe in God, God has not abandoned you. No. Yes. God made you the way you are. Mm-hmm. He loves you. You don't need anybody. Just yes. like I don't need a community to tell me my mother loves me. Yeah. Right. I don't need a community to tell me God loves me. And right. that is where I am. Right. Right. Thank you so much. Oh my goodness. Um, I, I, I'm so glad that you guys said this, you know, because last week actually I had uh, an episode interview with a pastor and we were talking about 
the need for the church, because I mentioned like if there's any time for the church to be more receptive and accommodating of the LGBTQIA community, it's now. And we had, a, I'll just leave it at, we had a very interesting discussion. Um, we agreed to disagree on so many things. And I mean, I hope you guys, you know, continue to watch that when it airs out. But it, it was, it was very interesting. And I mean, at the end of the day, um, my personal belief is that we as Christians, we have to act like Jesus did. Jesus hung around everybody, you know, I mean, I feel like a lot of Christians nowadays act like the Pharisees back in the day. You know, they were so judgmental. Like, you don't have to do this. You have to do this. This is a sin, but this is not a sin. And this is like, they, they try to pick and choose, right? They try to pick and choose which sin is more than which sin and which, you know, it, it's, it was just... Um, it was it was interesting to get a different perspective from the church, which was, uh, I don't know, it, it kind of made me ask even more questions. But um, what I truly believe is that we as Christians should just love one another as we love ourselves. We don't need to love people based on their personal choices. That's ba that's their relationship with God. That's what God is for with them or that's what God will do to them or do for them. Like we should not make our choices on how we treat our brothers and sisters based on what we think is wrong or based on what we think God will be more angry with versus other sins. Because we all, I believe a church is like a hospital. Everybody who comes there is sick from something, right? And we're trying to get healing. We're trying to get, um, we're trying to leave out better than we came, obviously. But we cannot pick and choose like, oh, your illness is more serious than my illness. So that makes me better than your, than you, or that makes, gives me the right to, to point fingers or whatever, because, um, at the end of the day, God is the judge. And what's most important is our personal relationship with God and not even with man. And like Dr. Wilson said, like no man has a right to tell you who to love. No man has a right to tell you who loves you you know, and um, I'm so grateful for that message that you guys have sent out to the LGBT community. Now, um, Dr. Wilson, I, I watched a video online. I believe Mrs. Sola Wilson actually um, posted that as well. And it was a video of you preaching in the church. And that was a very, very, very powerful video. And you told your story about how you couldn't go to your mother's funeral in Nigeria. And that, that really touched me because, um, I mean, I have a very close relationship with my mom. I mean, I, I've recorded a couple of episodes episodes with my with my family and I came to realize growing up that we did not live in the typical African community or African family like not the conservative family my parents um, gave us that leverage to be ourselves to choose what we wanted to do to have that freedom to talk to them like there was no corporal punishment in my house like it was, it was so unusual and you know, living in un unusual times back then in Nigeria and to have a mother who accepted you for who you were I mean that right there is something that so many people cannot talk about or speak for, you know, so to not be able to attend the funeral of the one person that stood up for you, or at least the one, one of the few people that stood up for you, I can only imagine, you know, how heartbreaking that was on your part. And from that interview, I also realized, you know, um, I mean, I, I learned a lot from the questions that you had based on your talks with God. And I mean, just to see you stand in at a pulpit in a church and preach as an LGBTQIA community member. I mean, that in and of itself was, you didn't even have to say anything. That was a powerful visual, you know? So how do you think Christians can be more accommodating to the LGBTQIA community? And what do you think um, in terms of the laws that restrict or put people like you both on exile from the country? Like, what do you both think, you know, lawmakers could do to embrace members of this community? Thank you. Thank you. Um, Thank you, Anya, for, for the question. Yeah. Um, you used a couple of words, accommodate and embrace. Yeah. And I don't think that that should even be the ask. Let right, me start right. I think that when we think of what the church can do mm -hmm. for members of the LGBTQIA community, right. I simply say, you know, let them be, let us be. You shouldn't even be able to identify us yeah. yes. separate from the church. From anybody, yes. You know, it would sort of be like saying, what should the church do for um, introverted scientists? Yeah. Yes. That would be like a, you know, it's like, yes. I'd like us to get to the point where that question is met with the yeah. same consternation. Yeah. Why would we do anything different 
for introverted scientists than we do for For anybody else. Yes. And we can only get there in the church community if we truly do what it is you just said. Let's just model our lives like Jesus did. Yes. And I think if we if we could do just that one thing, yes, that would make a huge impact. Oh yes, that's it's true. like when when he came up to her children. Oh yeah, it was a dining table, and she was you know she had this big speech ready, and then she said you know I and I want you to know I'm gay. And Femi, who's our younger son, he was eating. He didn't even stop a beat. He yeah. was like so, you know, right? It didn't matter. Wow, that is where the church needs to get. It's not about accommodating yes. us. Yeah. We don't have special needs. We're just who we are. Yeah. Yes. And we're already in the church anyway. Right. Yes, yes. But when we do that, they will be well positioned to deal with the second question. Mm. Because the real church has a very powerful voice. Yes. yes. Or can have a very powerful voice. Mm. Or let me say the authentic church has a really, can have a really powerful voice in the public square. Yes. And a lot of the regulations and the laws, as you look across Africa, they're not really driven by politicians. Mm. They're driven by the church. Yes. So that in my mind is the first fix. There are really very few politicians sitting around thinking, next should pass about LGBTQ. No. A lot of the negative sentiment that makes its way into Africa's politics, culture, uh, laws, regulations is driven by religion. Yeah. Yes. Very cool. And so the church will position itself to lend its voice to that. Um, mm. I think when it also comes to changing laws, mm-hmm. laws are made by who people. was the government, are the people. Yeah. It's about us. Mm-hmm. And so it's it really, again, it goes back to if every single person chose to really look themselves in the eye, in the mirror, Mm-hmm. If every single community chose to do the same, mm-hmm. let's not skip family. If yes, every yes. family chose to take the time, uh, they will find the LGBTQIA people in their family. Yes. So before we even begin to try to blame the country or the continent, yes. how about we start with ourselves and our families? Yeah. That's it for today. Thank you for listening to our show. If you want to participate in the show or find out more helpful resources, then visit www.livingafricanpodcast.com for more information or email us at hello at livingafricanpodcast.com. Also, don't forget to connect with us on all social media platforms at Living African Podcast. You can also connect with Anyo directly on Facebook or Instagram at Anyo. Fombard. Thanks again for listening and let's not forget to be more understanding and nicer to one another.